Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. I'm your host, Edward Hardy, and for today's interview, I'm joined by Zach Heltzel, the host of the Normal Country podcast. Zach Heltzel, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. As it is the big news of the week, we have to start with Special Counsel Robert Mueller's testimony before the House Judiciary Committee and the House Intelligence Committee. What did you think about the testimony? I found the five-hour ordeal uh, to mostly be pablum. I, uh, one thing about the Republican Party that the Democratic Party in the United States is not capable of or uh, doesn't seem to be interested in doing is that the Republicans, no matter if the facts are not on their side, no matter if uh, basic common sense is not on their side, they have this impeccable ability to always be on message and, and like a extremely uh, extremely great sense of how to create like theatrical narrative. So during that five hour testimony, we had two and a half hours of them essentially huffing Jenkum and creating this extremely bombastic uh, spectacle out of things, uh, talking about, uh, you know, adulterous uh, lovers text messaging and dirty dossiers and all of these things that they've been workshopping on Fox News for two years now. And then with the exception of Adam Schiff's line of questioning uh, on the Intelligence Committee, uh, the Democratic uh, members of Congress who were interviewing Mueller just weren't able to get that much out of him because Bob Mueller, the only way he could really break through the theatricality of the Republicans would be to operate as like an equal opposite to them. But he had no interest in, uh, you know, protecting the interests of the Democratic Party. He is not a Democrat. He is not a partisan. Uh, so he had absolutely no obligation to try to meet them on their level. So as a result, you just had uh, some embarrassing spectacle on one side. You had some, uh, you know, toothless Democrats trying to get Mueller to say things he would not say, and with uh, the exception of some few choice exchanges, uh, just there wasn't much to get out of it that uh, if you haven't read the actual report, which is an extremely dense but extremely gripping, uh, extremely damning document, that uh, it's very telling that the only person who seemed to have a visceral reaction to anything that was said uh, during the testimony today was the president himself, who I just don't believe has the intention span uh, to read a 448-page document. And some of the things that were said during this testimony that he watched on TV from his residence uh, is likely the first time he ever heard it. So it's I find that to be particularly interesting uh, about all this, that as I watched it, I didn't really get anything from it. I don't think most uh, Americans, most voters, most people paying attention got much out of it. But the president seemed to be very rattled by it. Uh, and that's just, you know, deeply embarrassing in its own way. Robert Mueller had expressed unwillingness to testify before Congress. Do you think he was doing a favor to Democrats, to the public by not testifying, given that nothing that he did while testifying really furthered the cause of those that want to challenge Donald Trump and use the findings of the special counsel's report to damage Trump? I just don't think Bob Mueller is particularly concerned about those things. You know, he's a man in his 70s, a lifetime uh, public servant. Uh, the man has a purple heart. He's worked in uh, the highest ranks of intelligence in the United States for decades. Uh, he is a registered Republican. Like, he considers himself, uh, rightly or wrongly, to be above this all. So he was given a job. He spent two years doing that job. Uh, in my estimation from reading his report, I think he did a fairly good job getting answers to things that for a lot of us who are paying really close attention uh, to this uh, investigation, uh, he did a really good job answering those questions. But he is the kind of no-nonsense person who doesn't understand why, say, the book needs to be turned into a movie, as a lot of people are very fond of saying. You know, he wrote his report. He gave his findings. Uh, it's not his concern that only 1% of the uh, American population has read it. Uh, he doesn't understand why he has to go on television and just restate things that he's already written. He's already said his 
piece. He's already, as I uh, repeatedly refer to it, he's already dropped the album. He doesn't feel like he needs to explain any of this. So he came, the reason why he was so hesitant to testify, and then when we actually saw him there today, it just seemed like he didn't want to be there. Uh, he, he just didn't really feel a need for himself to be there. Uh, and the only way he would have felt that way is if he uh, viewed himself more like a partisan player. He's like a non-partisan person for an extremely polarized time where there really isn't any room uh, for fence-sitters, but because he's always been above it, you know, he's not going to change now. He's not like James Comey or others who, after, you know, being impartial for years or claiming to be impartial, uh, all of a sudden they've, you know, hit their breaking point and now they've decided to pick a side. Bob Mueller just had no interest in that, and he showed that. It was a... his performance, I, I don't think he did a bad job. I think, you know, the, the Democratic House of Representatives, for the most part, with the exception of some, you know, key notable members, is a, you know, toothless constituency, uh, while the Republicans are just, you know, trained by the right-wing media machine, and uh, because so many of them came from the Tea Party wave of 2010, a lot of them, you know, cut their teeth on being incendiary and blowhardy, and, you know, they, they just live for moments to turn any reasonable hearing into a sideshow. So every in the end, everybody sort of got what they wanted out of it, but it didn't really move the ball at all. And, you know, Robert Mueller, as far as he's concerned, he's done. Like, he, he did his report. He's over all this. He didn't want to be there, and he uh, hopes never has to come back. You mentioned how there were some standout moments from the hearings. Just looking at some of them, the first one was obviously House Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler's interaction with Robert Mueller, where he said... Did you actually exonerate the president? And Mueller responded, no. Now that special counsel Robert Mueller has clearly stated that the president has not been totally exonerated, something that was written in his report. Do you think Republicans will stop stating this false claim? Do you think that's what Democrats were hoping for? So the, you know, Republicans have such a concentrated media diet that they exist in this hermetically sealed bubble that nothing penetrates and anything that does, uh, they have trained themselves to write off as being fake or being propaganda from the left. So they are absolutely not going to change their tune based on anything that Robert Mueller said, any facts that were presented that are indisputable. And it even happened uh, during the uh, hearing itself. So the final uh, Republican statement, uh, Congressman, I believe his last name's Johnson, uh, rattled off a series of mistruths and then proceeded to call them indisputable facts before yielding his time. Uh, if you if you watch Fox News this evening, if you listen to uh, many members, Republican members of the ju- Judiciary and Intelligence uh, Committees, uh, you know, the, the actual facts of the case, the actual things that, you know, the Russians did, that members of the Trump campaign did, are completely immaterial and will not change the mind of a single Republican partisan who hasn't already been turned off by uh, Trump and his coalition, you know, during the campaign, let alone during his own presidency. So, no, none of that stuff really matters. Uh, there's, I forgot who put it together, but I saw on Twitter today, uh, somebody cut together portions from Mueller's testimony, and then when uh, Trump answered questions afterwards in this, you know, extremely uh, odd, even for him, uh, little spectacle that he did, uh, taking some questions and just behaving like a petulant toddler, he said the exact opposite thing just mere hours, if not minutes, after Bob Mueller said the exact opposite thing. So they are completely immune to having to reckon with anything resembling actual reality, and there's not really anything that, uh, you know, Democrats can do about it or the mainstream press or the objective press can do about it. Uh, the, the only thing that really matters from all this is whether or not the Democratic members of those committees are able to get the facts out there and the media is able to get the facts out there and have that convert, you know, two per, two to five percent of like nonpartisan affiliated independent voters to, uh, see the Mueller investigation in a slightly different way. That point you make about the fact that Donald Trump went out there and said things that were completely contrary to what was mentioned by Robert Mueller in his testimony was highlighted by a reporter from CBS, Paula Reed, 
who tweeted out an exchange between her and Donald Trump at the White House where she referenced the exchange between Republican Representative Ken Buck and Robert Mueller, where Mueller stated that Donald Trump could be charged with obstruction of justice after he leaves office. She questioned Donald Trump, asked for his reaction on that, to which he stated that's not what Robert Mueller said. He called her the worst and fake news, even though that is what Robert Mueller said. It's on tape. Everyone can see it. It's in the record. And it reminds me of a quote from George Orwell's 1984. The party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. Yeah, like, who are you going to believe? Your lying eyes or the game show host with the funny catchphrase who we've decided is above the law because he said a bunch of racist things six or seven years ago, and that made him qualify to be president. It is truly absurd. Uh, You know, I I would argue, because I'm a little bit biased, I'm a little more steeped in American politics than uh, than you are, uh, and, you know, you're more steeped in the politics of the UK than I am, but, like, that, as ridiculous as, you know, Boris Johnson might be, uh, I, I don't know for sure, but I feel confident in guessing that, uh, you know, even somebody as, you know, wildly unhinged as uh, newly minted Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, isn't quite that just baffling. The point that was raised by Representative Ken Buck unintentionally, he's a Republican, he was trying to catch Robert Mueller out. But the point that was raised by him in questioning Robert Mueller that Donald Trump could be charged with obstruction of justice after he leaves office. Obviously got a swathe of Democrats excited who want to see Donald Trump indicted, arrested for the crimes they believe he's committed both before and during his time in office. Do you think he'll ever face trial for the crimes that people allege he's committed? Or do you think that he will get away scot-free? I feel pretty confident in saying that Donald Trump will never see the inside of a prison cell uh, for, you know, one very simple reason. Uh, I'm I'm not so young that I don't remember uh, Barack Obama getting elected in 2008 uh, after a president and his uh, closest allies in the government uh, committed, you know, war crimes and uh, members of the elite in Wall Street uh, committed massive financial crimes that led to the biggest recession uh, in about 70 years. And none of them saw the inside of a jail cell because there was this prevailing notion uh, that we should just let bygones be bygones, turn the page, start fresh. Uh, and that is something that, um, you know, if Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or, frankly, even uh, somebody like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, should they become president, there would be a lot of pressure on them to just let it go by the wayside and, you know, start over, start new, focus future rather than the past, uh, you know, uh, centrists and people acting in bad faith uh, will say, well, look at Hillary Clinton. When Donald Trump got elected, he didn't go after her for the uh, email scandal. Uh, he said he, you know, led locker up chants, but then never actually did anything for it. So we should extend him that same courtesy as if those things are in any way comparable or anything like that. So the likelihood of Donald Trump uh, getting indicted for anything that Mueller found uh, as soon as he is not uh, protected by the notion of being president and thus being, you know, de facto above the law. I, I just don't see that happening. But the problem for Donald Trump's own psyche is that he is still such a political neophyte that when he heard that during that testimony, I'm sure it struck the fear of God into him because he doesn't understand that that wouldn't happen because he views his power as something that, you know, Democratic office holders would have the same view to their own uh, executive power and thus would go after him because if he was in their position, he would go after him. Uh, and I just I don't think he understands that 
there's a certain afterglow of being president, like uh, George W. Bush currently has over a 50% approval rating with Democrats, which is a statistic that blows my mind, but there is a historical precedent for that. When Donald Trump leaves office, a lot of people who currently dislike him are going to view him a lot more favorably, just like Barack Obama had uh, very low approval ratings when he was president. And then the moment he left the presidency, now he's polling in like, you know, the mid-60s, and everybody agrees that he was this affable, likable guy. And all these Republicans who are currently railing against people like Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren are using uh, Barack Obama as a comparison point to them, saying, well, we always respected Obama. He was such a nice guy. He reached across the aisle to us, which is just a complete uh, revision of the history of how contentious and how uh, toxic the Republican response to his presidency was. So, you know, Donald Trump's going to be fine. I can't make the same promise to people like Jared Kushner, but Donald Trump will... I feel very confident saying he's never going to uh, face prison time or really even uh, be charged with anything. You mentioned Jared Kushner. Do you think that Donald Trump would happily throw Jared Kushner, even Donald Trump Jr., (laughs) under the bus to save himself? Oh, absolutely. Uh, The man has absolutely no loyalty to anybody but himself, uh, very clearly. Uh, The... The track record of him throwing people under the bus, whether it's, uh, you know, contractors who worked for uh, the Trump organization building hotels and casinos to, you know, pretty much everybody in his political orbit for the last four years, whether it be uh, Mike Flynn, Jeff Sessions, uh, anybody who has been, you know, expendable, everybody. He, he has loyalty to absolutely nobody with the, you know, exception of the Russian and Saudi Arabian governments uh, for reasons uh, known and unknown. So I, I don't see him having very much loyalty to his uh, least favorite son or his uh, son-in-law. Absolutely not. Do you think Ivanka would be the only exception, the only one that he would not throw under the bus? I, you know what, uh, some people would argue that he would, uh, go out of his way to protect her, and I don't, like, I don't think it's gonna come to that, frankly, but I, I think when push comes to shove, uh, his loyalty extends to nobody, and, uh, his, uh, his demonstrated affection for Ivanka in particular of all his children is because she is the one who has taken the mo- taken after him the most, so, you know, people, People look at, like, Eric and Don Jr. as being the ones who take after him because they're both, you know, bloviating and bombastic. But Ivanka uh, is such a, a embodiment of everything that he uh, claims to see as ideal in women. And he, she also takes on sort of his, quote-unquote, best traits as somebody uh, taking a business that doesn't really have any assets, assets or value and, uh, you know, building off of just having a brand persona. So he really just sees Ivanka as an extension of himself, but, you know, uh, it reminds me of that uh, James Franco, Danny Boyle movie, 127 Hours, where, like, uh, if Donald Trump is, you know, stuck in that canyon with a rock on his arm, uh, and Ivanka's the arm, he'll, of course, cut it off. Ivanka Trump has certainly taken after him when it comes to Twitter faux pas, because after Boris Johnson became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom... Ivanka Trump took to Twitter as a White House senior advisor to congratulate Boris Johnson on becoming the next prime minister of the United Kingston. Yeah, she's I, I, I thought she was a lot more likable when she was just a run of the mill, uh, you know, uh, upscale woman who works mommy blogger uh, grifter, you know, like she she was a. Gwyneth Paltrow without the jade eggs, and there was something that, while it was, like, gross and tacky in the way that everything involving the Trumps was uh, gross and tacky, she still took on, you know, the veneer of New York cosmopolitanism in a way that was vaguely inoffensive. Uh, but now that she has been elevated to a political position where her uh, words and opinion have value and she can't really hide behind her... Uh, ability to go on background to reporters and say that she disavows every bad thing that her dad does while never having to come out uh, publicly against him. Uh, now that she can't really hide behind that, we all sort of know what her game is. Uh, she's being left to her own devices, and we're finding out that she's just as, you know, venal and, uh, you know, irredeemable as, uh, you know, her two uh, 
oldest siblings and uh her father i you know the verdict's still out on uh tiffany and baron uh they might be uh completely outstanding for all i know so uh i I won't judge them but yeah ivanka is uh no saint and i'm glad that that, uh for the most part people have uh people's patience have worn thin with her because i feel like during the campaign and during the uh first year of trump's presidency she tried to act like she was above it all that she was actually the likable one like in case this all fell apart she her and jared were planning on going back to you know new york debutante society and being welcomed back with open arms and that that seems like it's you know out of the cards now on your twitter account earlier today you retweeted a post from late night tv writer jesse mclaren that stated optics don't exist anymore alongside four photos one of donald trump saluting a north korean military officer one of donald trump with jeffrey epstein at a party one of Donald Trump from the Access Hollywood tape and one of Melania Trump wearing the infamous I really don't care to you jacket. How has Donald Trump created a situation where each of these incidents only end up being a 24 hour news story? Whereas if that was any previous administration, they'd either have gone on for months being considered scandals or would have been a scandal that the politician could never have recovered from. Trump figured out something that I feel like Republicans knew uh, intuitively, but didn't really know consciously, that the way to clear through a scandal is to just create additional scandals to where nobody can stay focused on it, that the the way that you'll be taken down in politics by scandal is if it, if you do, like, one indiscretion uh, and are otherwise, you know, on the straight and narrow. So, like, there's a lot of discussion this week after Jane Mayer and the New Yorker published this uh, piece about Al Frank. And the reason why Al Franken was forced to resign was because in so many other aspects of his life, uh, he was, you know, relatively outstanding and, you know, didn't do very much wrong, uh, was very respectful to people, was by all accounts, you know, a pretty decent guy who may or may not have done things that were somewhat unsavory. Uh, but if instead of resigning, he would have just proceeded to be this wild card doing something offensive every day in perpetuity, uh, he would likely still be a senator from Minnesota. Uh, Jesse's tweet today about optics in particular was a response to NBC's Chuck Todd, who tweeted something about how uh, on the substance, uh, the Mueller uh, testimony was good for them, but on the optics, it was a disaster, uh, which is emblematic of the... Uh, cable news ecosystem that allowed Trump to thrive uh, in the Republican primary. He was able to have his uh, rallies aired on all major news networks in their uh, in totality, uh, you know, for months and months, which allowed him to have, you know, billions of dollars in uh, free media provided by MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, which allowed him to become the Republican nominee, which allowed him to become president. And uh, it's clear that guys like Chuck Todd and like Chris Eliza on CNN have not learned anything uh, from the mistakes of how they covered Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign, where they are constantly focused on politics as if they are ESPN and this is Sports Center, to where the you know the meat and potatoes of the Mueller testimony does not matter to them. What matters to them is their own you know DC bubble interpretation of quote unquote optics what will people in a diner in ohio think people that they've never met they've never visited ohio for reasons outside of you know campaign horse race coverage like chuck todd just has no idea what the quote-unquote optics are and yet he made a judgment based entirely on that and the notion that optics apply to democrats but you know everything uh, donald trump does like saying uh, send her back in relation to a woman of color in the united states congress uh, send her back to somalia when she you know has lived in the united states since she was 10 the the very idea that any of that matters anymore is something that only people like chuck todd and those who are just deep 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 inside of uh, the D.C. establishment uh, media circle think is relevant. And uh, he was dunking on that. I retweeted on it. I retweeted it because I thought that was worth dunking on. I find uh, punditry of that sort to just be absolutely useless and have uh, no uh, modern or historical context. That issue of how the media needs to be careful about the remarks they make and what they might justify through those remarks 
has been proven with that specific reference to Chuck Todd because of how the Republican Party's official Twitter account took that clip from Chuck Todd talking about how the optics were, quote, a disaster and used it to state that, quote, despite promising political drama, today's hearings provided no additional details and was full of political grandstanding. So that argument that was being made by Jesse McLaren, what you were talking about there, has been proven by the fact that the Republican Party has gone ahead and used this clip in a tweet to justify their point attacking the Democrats for holding these hearings. Yeah, so the Republicans understand that. I feel like uh, many on the left understand that, but the people who don't seem to understand that are people in the media themselves. So yesterday, uh, Maggie Haberman of the New York Times was talking about how um, she doesn't set the agenda. She doesn't, uh, as a reporter with a national profile, she doesn't dictate what people care about, uh, completely ignoring her and people like her's own responsibility for what is considered newsworthy. Uh, it is uh, completely uh, absurd to think that... Uh, you know, very influential writers at the New York Times and uh, them picking what they decide to and what they decide not to cover doesn't set the tone for other outlets. It doesn't set the tone for cable news. It doesn't set the tone for bloggers. It doesn't set the tone for local news. Uh, they just do not want to take responsibility for the fact that if they decide to ignore a story after one day, um, that it's on them. But if they decide to uh, have Hillary Clinton's email server lead the news for, you know, six months, that wasn't the public deciding that that was an important story. That was them telling the public that, that it was important and the public having trust in them as institutions that provide them with the truth. OK, just because the New York Times and The Washington Post, they are you know, there's a lot of very talented people who work for them. They do really good work on the whole. But I feel like the Achilles heel of some of these legacy media institutions is that they uh, don't really have a sense of their own power uh, and their own responsibility to tell people what is important. Because they they like to claim when it suits them that they don't have that power. But as a consumer of news, as somebody who subscribes to the New York Times and the Washington Post, I read them because what they are covering is going to be important to me. And if something's not in there, I'm going to subconsciously think that if I saw it on, say, a partisan blog or I heard it on, like, a leftist podcast and then it's not being covered by those institutions, that I might be getting propagandized by the left – and my, you know, own personal shame trying to keep me as objective as possible uh, is telling me, hey, if the New York Times isn't covering it, then, you know, maybe it's a bit overblown. I, I just wish that, you know, people like Maggie Haberman or Chuck Todd would take responsibility for the fact that they and their thoughts about the work they do influence the opinions and the understanding of the facts of, of millions and millions of people. Isn't that the issue that exists now in America and part of the reason that there's been this divide that's been fueled, which is that individuals turn to their news organization, their news site of choice. And if they don't see a certain story covered, they deem it unimportant or they're just completely unaware of it. So that when you've got a certain section of the country only watching Fox News, a certain section of the country only watches CNN, you've got two very different portrayals of what is an important story and which stories matter. And so you end up with a situation where some people in the country aren't going to be aware of what's going on or the issues that they need to know. Yes, absolutely. So Fox News, uh, uh, unlike, uh, you know, very influential people at some of the more objective uh, center news outlets, they understand they are very aware of the power that they have. Sean Hannity knows that when it's July 2019 and he is leading his program talking about Loretta Lynch meeting with Bill Clinton on the tarmac at the Phoenix airport in 2016, he knows why he is doing that, even if to anybody who just isn't fully, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid of whatever Fox News and the Republican Party are currently selling them. They know why they're doing that, and they know how it's going to impact their viewership. Uh, meanwhile, and this is part of why it was 
so brilliant for, you know, decades to have Republicans tell, you know, down the middle objective news outlets that they have a liberal bias and to so distrust of them because not only does it move the Overton window of having, you know, centrist and even like center right outlets be viewed as the left that they can bounce off of. It also uh, psychologically has gotten under, you know, people's skin at many outlets here in America to think that they, if only the left is reading them and if only the left is taking them seriously, that means they are not doing their job well enough of being objective. So they will actively cater to a base of people who get their news from, frankly, Fox News, uh, despite being essentially a state media apparatus of the RNC, uh, is almost a center-right outlet in the United States now uh, because so many people now get their news through uh, Facebook that outlets that uh, during even the Obama administration that were considered fringe, like Infowars or Gateway Pundit, are now considered mainstream right news sources that when you call them fringe or crazy or far right, uh, people genuinely take objection to that. And it's just it's moved things so far that, you know, when CNN gets called a leftist news outlet, uh, CNN has absolutely uh, no agenda in mind to support anything that the coalition of the left has in mind other than just you know, a basic commitment to facts and reality. Looking at the 2020 Democratic primary, which is underway at the moment, who do you think is doing well so far? Who do you think is flagging? Who do you think should follow Representative Eric Swarwell's lead and drop out of the race? Well, as uh, I'm going to show my cards here, I'm somebody who is particularly fond of uh, people who are in the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wing of the Democratic Party. So I have a tendency to view them through rose-colored glasses uh, while being slightly more critical of the other candidates. I have made a point to, in this extremely crowded field, to take everybody seriously, regardless of if they're polling between zero and one percent. I try to watch their interviews. I've... Ev- Everybody who has a book out uh, to promote their campaign, I've made a point to read it, or if there's somebody I'm just not that particularly enthused by, I'll at least listen to the audiobook. And one thing that I found uh, extremely surprising in all this is that the candidates who are polling really well uh, seem to deserve to be, while those who are having trouble breaking 1%, uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, people like John Hickenlooper or Michael Bennett or John Delaney uh, just do not have charisma. They do not have bold ideas. Uh, when they're asked about uh, tangible things that they need to have practical solutions to that are very real problems that they're going to have to face, like this you know, sort of broad, ambitious ideas like debt-free college or Medicare for all, and just look at sort of like immediate technocratic, you know, small ball issues that they're going to have to deal with. They're just ill-equipped for the moment. They would be completely ineffectual presidents. They have absolutely no plan of action to do anything once they get into office. So they should just completely drop out right now. Um, I think Joe Biden, uh, somebody who is notoriously bad at running for president, uh, you know, before he became Obama's vice president and the onion canonized him as Diamond Joe Biden, wearing aviator sunglasses and uh, washing his uh, Trans Am on the White House lawn, uh, just was very bad at running for president in 1988, uh, dropped out because he plagiarized a speech, you know, didn't do very well in 2008. Uh, there's a reason why his poll numbers seem to be dipping and a race that he should have ran away with is now fairly competitive. I think Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are, are doing fine. Um, they need to get a little bit more of a giddy-up to broaden out their coalitions uh, to maybe pick off some Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris supporters, which both of them still have a chance, but I just don't find them compelling enough on the stump, and I don't find their ideas to be transformative enough to really build a broad coalition to win a primary and then grow the uh, Clinton coalition from 2016 to create a sizable enough majority to win the presidency. So right now I think the uh, the only three people currently in it who could win the nomination and also win the general election are Biden, Warren, and Sanders, and I think the polls bear that out, but even if I wasn't looking at the polls, my answer would be the same just because of their, their gravitas, uh, their general likability, and then also, uh, especially in the case of Sanders and Warren, their uh, grasp of policy, their vision of a government that helps a group of people who have been ignored uh, by politicians in recent memory, uh, 
I, I just feel like they have a vision for the country that could uh, create a broad enough coalition to allow them to successfully govern. When the polls show that individuals out of the top candidates that you mentioned are polling incredibly low, and by that I mean in the 1% or lower, why do you think individuals like, to name a few, Michael Bennett, Steve Bullock, John Hickenlooper, Beto O'Rourke, don't instead focus their attention on running in crucial Senate races. Why do you think that they're determined to run for president rather than run in Senate races which are competitive and they could win? I think the answer is vanity. I think part of it is that a, you know, little known, uh, young mayor of a small town in Indiana named Pete Buttigieg decided to run for president and now he is a top tier candidate and you have this slew of, uh, uh, you know, senators and governors and people with, you know, the traditional qualifications to make a run for the presidency, they just do not understand why this guy can do it, but they can't, and they don't understand why they're not getting traction. Um, John Hickenlooper is somebody who, you know, he was a mayor, he was a governor, uh, he uh, was a very successful business owner. Frankly, I don't think he wants to be a senator because that would be a very boring job for him. He would do a lot better in the private sector uh, than he would as a senator. He would be bored by the the idea. Uh, Beto O'Rourke, uh, he has Democratic consultants in his ear whispering that he can be the next Obama. I feel like he got a high from his uh, nearly successful Senate race uh, where, you know, he was an extremely inspiring candidate who waged an uh, incredible campaign against Ted Cruz. I really wish he would have won. I uh, wish that he was in the Senate right now. And uh, frankly, I don't blame him that he wants to that he doesn't want to go back out there and do that again and then lose to uh, John Cornyn by three points in 2020. I get why he made the leap to the presidency, because everyone was telling him he could do it. But instead of being authentic on the stump like he was when he ran for the Senate, uh, he had sweet nothings whispered into his ear by the consultant class. And now he talks like a robot. And it's uh, it's discouraging. I'm someone who, you know, was really fond of Beto O'Rourke and really wanted him to run for president. And uh, in the last couple months, it's looked like that was a really bad idea. Uh, and then, you know, Steve Bullock, uh, I'm actually, he's the only one I'm really curious about in the upcoming debates, uh, because everything I know about him, he is like a very charismatic guy with some uh, pretty good ideas and would probably make for a pretty decent nominee and a pretty decent president. But he declared so late that, uh, you know, he hasn't really registered because most voters don't know who he is. They've never had an opportunity to see him and they already, most people have already, you know, picked their horses in this race. So I'm curious to see how Bullock does in the debates. And if he doesn't do particularly well, uh, I would hope that he runs for Senate in Montana because I uh, I believe that Steve Daines is definitely beatable and Steve Bullock is a really popular governor. Uh, I see no reason why he couldn't uh, win that seat despite uh, you know Trump being on the ballot in 2020. Uh, but yeah, there's only like seven or eight people uh, currently in that race who should still be there. Like I I get why despite polling at one percent or below, people like Tulsi Gabbard or Andrew Yang or Marianne Williamson have no incentive to drop out because they're people who have ideas for the Democratic Party in the country that are different than the other candidates. Uh, guys like Jay Inslee, uh, you know, they have a perspective that the other candidates do not share. But you know, people like uh, Kirsten Gillibrand or uh, you know, any of the other, uh, not to be t- too disparaging, but uh, all of the other mayonnaise dads who are all running, who, you know, you couldn't pick them out of a lineup if you tried, uh, it's not going to happen for them. And the only thing keeping them in it right now is, I I guess, probably vanity. Uh, I was really uh, proud of Eric Swalwell for getting out when he did because he, you know, he announced in April and then dropped out because he had one debate. It didn't go particularly well. And he, uh, in an interview with 538, said that he didn't want to waste the time of his volunteers. He didn't want to waste the money of his donors. And he didn't want to put his family through a doomed presidential bid. So the moment he saw the writing on the wall, he got out. He didn't wait. And that was really commendable of him. And I really hope that, you know, this field whittles down to like, you know, nine or ten people in the next month or two. You mentioned, obviously, Senator Elizabeth Warren. She's got a plan, it seems, for everything. She recently released a plan, one of her detailed policy proposals, to cancel approximately $640 billion of student loan. Now, for the listeners here in the UK, there's an ongoing debate 
hear about student debt, the cost of university, etc. But are these pale in comparison to the cost of tuition in America? We don't have to pay it up front. And the amount of student debt we have doesn't affect our credit rating at all. It's simply taken a small proportion of our salary every month is taken to pay for it once you start earning a certain amount. And then after a certain number of years, it's written off completely over here. So how much of an issue is student loan debt in America and how problematic is it for those that have it? It's extremely problematic. It's a we have a generation of Americans who essentially have mortgages at the age of 22, but they don't own a house. Um, to I was very lucky to get scholarships and grant um, to go to college. I went to a public university, uh, even though my dream school, the school I got into, the school I intended to go to, until I got the sticker shock of having to get uh, over $200,000 in student loans to be able to attend, uh, so I didn't go. Uh, a lot of my you know classmates at my public university – uh, who weren't uh, fortunate enough to get scholarships and grants still ended up with about sixty, seventy thousand dollars uh, in debt to go to school, and that was in-state tuition for somebody going to a school that was, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year, as opposed to some of the private, more elite institutions that run fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year just for tuition. Uh, that's not including room, board, living expenses, uh, books which, you know, uh, for every semester you end up spending almost $1,000 just on textbooks. Uh, there is a industrial complex around uh, not only school books, but being able to, you know, do your homework online. There are, uh, like for math classes, you will have to spend hundreds of dollars just to get access to the digital tools to complete your homework. It is just, you get nickel nickel and dimed everywhere. And, uh, you know, you have to understand if you are not just totally uh, steeped in American politics that the left party in the United States basically are just as far to the right as like the Tories in the UK. Uh, we, we really aren't a left party other than just by proximity to our own right. So even Elizabeth Warren's plan to, you know, cancel up to $50,000 of somebody's student loan debt, uh, based upon their income and age and other factors, uh, her means tested debt cancellation program is still very conservative. Uh, Bernie Sanders has a plan to just cancel it outright and they're legit legitimate uh, technocratic policy discussions around whether or not uh, a full debt cancellation would uh, be primarily advantageous to those who are wealthy because uh, people from the upper middle class and the rich are more likely to take out, you know, more loans because they have a higher capacity to pay them back. But, you know, there are so many people who come from, especially because in America, if you do not have a college degree, it is very hard for you to get any sort of, you know, dignified a job that isn't uh, in uh, service or manual labor. If you want to, you know, make over thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars a year, unless if you go to trade school, you know, you could take up a trade. But if you, you know, want to do some of these, you know, more traditional office jobs or things like that. Uh, you absolutely have to go to college. It's not negotiable. And so for those in the working and lower classes, uh, a college education is seen by most of us as like the only way out. So when we are 18 years old, we are faced with this uh, choice of, you know, do you get a hundred thousand dollars in loans to go to school or if you or do you not? And the choice is presented to you as, you know, you don't really have a concept of how much money that is and how hard that is going to be to pay it off. Uh, but you do know the stakes of if you don't do it. So we just have, you know, millions of young people who are taking on six figures in debt with no assets. And this debt is not uh, you cannot discharge it in bankruptcy. So you are stuck with this debt until the day you die or you pay it off. And the interest rates are so high that you will end up probably paying twice the amount of the loan. So it is a crisis. And there are one it's there is more student debt now than there is credit card debt in the United States. So it is something that actually really needs to be addressed. And it seems like with the exception of Bernie Sanders calling for a complete cancellation of student debt, a complete write off and Elizabeth Warren with a more moderate plan, nobody else seems to acknowledge it. Joe Biden uh, is on the record saying that he doesn't sympathize with young people because he doesn't uh, he doesn't see their problems as being legitimate. But like the numbers don't lie. This is a crisis that is 
the explanation for why uh, millennials are k- killing everything. If you can't, you know, go onto any website or read any newspaper without seeing a headline that like millennials are killing the napkin industry or millennials are the reason why uh, people aren't buying bananas anymore. And it's because uh, millennial millennials aren't going out to eat, but they're also not eating at home. What's the deal? Uh, because they can't buy houses. They cannot afford to start families. That's why birth rates are declining. That is why uh, millennials are killing every industry. It's because they are saddled with an economy that is forcing them to get hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. And then even with that debt, they are getting into these jobs that, uh, you know, not adjusted for inflation are paying the same amount that they did in the 80s. It is a, you know, just unbelievable rigged game that, you know, it makes a lot of sense why millennial Americans and Gen Z are uh, receptive to radical uh, visions of, of, you know, governmental structural change that, you know, Gen X and the boomers just don't understand. It's the reality of how millennials now don't have the funds, they don't have the ability to afford the expensive purchases, let alone their repayment of student debt. Do you think that university in America is just going to become too expensive for individuals to afford? I know you said that people obviously need a degree for their career, but will there be a point where it's just not possible for millennials to do that? They have to choose between a potential stable future and a degree. At this point, I don't think so. As long as the government continues to guarantee these loans for students, uh, tuitions are just going to keep going up and people are going to take on more and more debt because at this point, it's almost a joke. Uh, people are becoming essentially indentured servants uh, to their uh, student loan company because they just, you know, they're never going to pay off this 220000 uh, dollar debt on their shoulders so they almost don't even want to try to they default on it because it's like what's going to happen are they going to you know garnish my wages good luck uh I, that's already happening because of all of my medical debt like there is just as long as the government continues to uh guarantee these loans and tuition continues to go up like what's the difference to an 18 year old between a $200,000 loan and a $300,000 loan um tangibly there's no difference when that uh bill comes due uh you know they're not going to be able to pay off a $3,000 a month student loan bill uh just as they're not going to be able to pay off a $4,000 student loan bill so you know there there's going to have to be a public policy shift um, that gets rid of the system that allowed this to be possible. Um, I, I don't know the numbers offhand about, uh, you know, if college attendance is going up or down, if uh, people are enrolling into trade schools or not, um, because that that seems to be uh, sort of the, the center-left solution to this problem. Just stop going to university, start going to trade schools, learn to code, uh, you know, these sort of, you know, small technocratic solutions um, that sort of don't have to address the underlying problem. And, like, sure, it's good advice. Um, if you want to take up a trade and make a decent uh, middle-class living, um, that's a perfectly admirable thing to do. If you want to learn to code and be a software engineer, that is an amazing thing, absolutely. To go do it, but that's not for everybody. That is not a solution to this problem. And uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have a solution for it. Um, let's hope that if they become president, they are able to gain enough seats in the Senate. And the Senate seats that the Democrats do gain are taken up by people who are willing to take tough votes to uh, substantiate their agenda, uh, because otherwise nothing's going to happen, and this is just going to continue on. We could keep talking about various issues probably all night but let's turn to a topic that i can't ignore as you describe yourself as a cat dad i have to ask you about the (laughs) film trailer that's been either exciting people or horrifying them what are your thoughts on the live action cats movie trailer i'm Look, I'm somebody who is a big fan of Broadway. I I love the theater. I love plays. I've uh, never been a particularly big fan of the musical Cats. 
Uh, I've seen it. I did not much like it. I, uh, this might be, uh, very, uh, controversial to your British ears, but now that I've seen that trailer, I am at least curious because some of the creative decisions behind what they seem to have done here baffle me a little bit. I don't understand why rather than putting them in costumes, they have decided to use what they call digital fur technology to make them look like cats in every way except for having fully human faces, uh, rather than, you know, giving them cat eyes or cat noses or or making them look like, you know, cats. Uh, they've decided to just give them cat bodies despite having, you know, uh, very perky, uh, very human, uh, you know, bust. And as a result, like, it looks fine on people like Taylor Swift who have, you know, very blank expressions. But Jennifer Hudson, a uh, brilliant performer, uh, but so much of her emotion comes through her face. So seeing this very human, very emotional face on a body of a cat... Uh, that is sized relative to everything else to look the size of a cat is extremely jarring and extremely disorienting, which I think is the point because the Broadway show is extremely disorienting. It is, for crying out loud, it is a play where Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote songs based on T.S. Eliot poems and the plot of the musical is essentially all of these cats are competing because one of them gets to go to cat heaven. It is completely bonkers. It is the product of, of I assume, cocaine. So, you know, anything that they can do with the, uh, you know, technical achievement that they've pulled off here to simulate, uh, you know, a drug trip, uh, I'm, I'm all for it. So I'm, I'm curious. I, I was deeply horrified by the, that trailer, to be frank, but, uh, will I be there this Christmas? Yeah. I'm genuinely worried that you've alienated every British listener as soon as you suggested that there was a problem with cats because I feel like insulting <laughs> Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber is is an insult that British people can't handle. He is seen as a national treasure over here, so I feel like you've really offended a lot of British people with that assessment. I made a point. I made a point not to say anything bad about Dame Judi Dench as Old Deuteronomy, because I recognize that there are people that your country view as sacred. If you say a word against Dame Judi Dench, that I feel like I have to end this entire podcast. Look, I, which is why I was not going to say anything and I have nothing to say. However, about Andrew Lloyd Webber, I feel like, uh, you know, I personally am a devotee of Sondheim and I feel like you have to choose. I feel like, like you have to choose between Sondheim and Andrew Lloyd Webber and I have made my choice. Uh, take it or leave it. Can we just all agree that America can keep James Corden? We gave him to you. No, and take he, him back. Take him, no, no. Send you, him you, back. Send him, him back. Send he him is, He is York now. We have sent him to America. He can stay there doing a talk show. He did one good thing in Britain, which was Gavin and Stacey, and since then, nothing. Look, I'm just happy that you guys took back Piers Morgan. Because we did not want him, and we were afraid that we were going to be stuck with him forever. But I do want you to take back James Corden, and frankly, you can also take Jason Derulo with you. We didn't just take back Piers Morgan. We put him on breakfast television every day. I'm so sorry. That's that's a national emergency. I'm I'm deeply, deeply sorry. I think as the trade-off for having Piers Morgan, you guys get James Corden. And to be honest, Canada's already given you Justin Bieber. So I think you can do the world a favor and take one other sacrifice from every nation. Look, I strongly disagree with uh, Trump's immigration policies, but when it comes to James Corden and uh, Justin Bieber, uh, you know what? Maybe we are full. <laughs> well, I feel on, on that note, that is a good place to wrap up the podcast. Thank you for joining me, Zach Heltzel. I really appreciate you taking the time. No, thank you for having me. That was Zach Heltzel, the host of the Normal Country podcast. You can find out more about him on Twitter at Zach Heltzel and the Normal Country podcast on all podcasting apps. That's all for this week. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.